Here is a Book Shambles author extra, and here is Dan Davis talking about his critically revered new book, all about immunology. I'm in the right position. Excellent. Hello, welcome to uh, another Book Shambles Extra, and uh, today I am with the author of a new book called The Beautiful Cure. Uh, His name is Daniel Davis, and he is Professor of Immunology at Manchester University. And uh, so, I'll tell you what, we're going to start off, Dan, just by, before we talk about... some other books that you brought in, that are books that you particularly like. I want to talk about your new book, The Beautiful Cure. Now, the cover is kind of interesting, because it's got this lovely, uh, kind of like a cover, like the, the, it, the middle of a flower, kind of almost a Japanese style, it's called The Beautiful Cure, Harnessing Your Body's Natural Defences. And you could almost, if you saw this in a bookshop, wonder if it was, you know, kind of pseudoscience, or charlatanism, or real science. Yeah, yeah, that, that, so... Exactly. So I don't know if that was deliberate or not, but it was certainly something we thought about. So we thought about whether uh, it would be too much to suggest this is, you know, it's about the subtitles, harnessing your body's natural defences, and it could seem like a self-help. But then the the issue is that it is about that. It is about harnessing your body's natural defences, but perhaps not what you would think of immediately. It's not really about, uh, you know, practising... uh, meditation or something to boost your immunity, although I do discuss that. It's not quite about what supplements might do to boost your immunity, but I do discuss that. It's really about harnessing your body's natural defences at the level of, you know, this is really in detail how your immune system works, and from that understanding we get to these quite amazing new kinds of medicine that essentially are harnessing your body's natural defences, yeah. So it's, it's, it's hopefully it's going to be a solid science book. Not well, a, no, I think it's, that's right, what I like right. about it, is I yeah. like the fact that people might be lured to it yeah. thinking it's one of those kind of... But, but actually then find out that it is based on uh, a, a body of experimental science. And yeah. it's... Uh, and it's, I mean, it's fascinating. Cause the starting point of it... Is basically you saying, you know, people just you think, well, what happens with uh, uh, the, the the body fighting against alien things? So something alien goes in, and then the body goes, not you. Yeah. And then people went, well, hang on a minute. That would mean every time we ate food, yeah, yeah. your body would go, I don't know what this is. Right, throw it out. Right, right. So there's a lot of things that seem in this book to be, well, this must have been a commonsensical idea. And then we find out that really, in the last only 30 years, the change of understanding about how our body recognises what is uh, alien and not wanted and what is alien and required. Yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating, Robin. So, like, you know, so part of what I'm writing about here is the wonder of it at the level of... It's all the detail, it's all the detail that we're... So you're exactly right that it was really... 1989, uh, a a pretty famous immunologist was, was thinking, you know with his wife, another famous immunologist, Kim Bonner, they're thinking, what, what happens when you get a cut or a wound? What, what gets the immune system to think that there's something there that warrants some kind of a response? And up until that point, people were thinking, well, you know, your body is set up, as you said, to react to everything that's alien to, to the body. Anything that's not part of you warrants an immune response. But clearly that can't be true because you just said there's, you know, food isn't part of you and you don't want an immune response against food. And even more subtly than that, there's bacteria in your stomach that are very beneficial versus bacteria that might be harmful. How does your immune system discriminate between things that could harm the body versus things that are still alien to the body but okay? So that 
you know, any any starting place is to some extent arbitrary in any scientific adventure. But that is a starting place uh, where, from that moment, we dug into the DLs and this whole labyrinth of cells, molecules, genes, proteins, all kinds of biological components opened up the immune system for what it is, which is unbelievably complex. It's not. There is no simple soundbite that tells you how the immune system works it doesn't work by it reacts against stuff that's not you it doesn't re- re- react solely to bacteria because like we just said there are bacteria in you that are, should be there so it's really complicated and, and we don't want to hide away from that complexity what's amazing about it is that we understand so much of it that we're at the point where we can nudge bits of the immune system to help us fight off different kinds of illnesses so so that's why if if the books come out at the right time it's because of that it's because we're at the point where the knowledge is leading us to new medicines even though there's lots of mysterious things we don't quite understand it's exciting because maybe these kinds of treatments that work with you there there maybe there were a tipping point where we're going to get more and more of these kinds of new medicines so that's why it's exciting it's exciting because of the wonder from the dl and of course, the, the the personal journey of the scientists getting stuff worked out is is wonderful. And because we're going to get new medicines, I don't want to give away too much about the book, obviously, because people need to buy it. But you know, I, I just reached that chapter, which to me again is very fascinating because it seems like common sense. But then, of course, you go, but why is that common sense? The idea of if you have a virus, then you probably won't have another virus at the same time. That you know, and I think it was Erasmus Darwin, was it Erasmus Darwin? Or was yeah, it, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who talked about the fact, you know, yeah, yeah. if someone has smallpox, then yeah. they don't have measles as well. It just yeah, uh, yeah, it yeah. seems that yeah, yeah. you know you don't. Now that. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? That oh, yeah, bit? that story is actually quite amazing. So, uh, yeah, essentially there were, there were two scientists uh, uh, working at the... It was in Mill Hill in, in North London, National Institute of Medical Research. And they were... You know, there was this phenomenon out there that... It, it, yeah, people, like you say, people noticed that if you had one type of virus, you tended not to get another virus. And it was just a sort of, hmm, interesting. And then... That, that, but that was even true in, in, in a dish. If you took uh, cells and infected them with a virus, it was m- very hard to infect the same cells with another virus. And, and interesting. But, you know, a couple of scientists really started to dig into that problem, thinking, hold on a minute, there, there, there might be something quite profound about why that happens. And, and, and essentially, in, in the book, I go through all the details of all the experiments they did, because it's, it's a wonderful journey of discovery, actually. But what they end up discovering, essentially, is that cells uh, secrete uh, um, a particular molecule called interferon, which stops the presence, uh, stops other viruses infecting other cells. And, and, and you know, this became a massive uh, because people thought that initially if interferon is, a, is this, this molecule that gets secreted by cells when they're infected with the virus, if that stops viruses from infecting, then it could be this new wonder drug and it, it became part of culture. Government were all excited about it. Uh, the, the story ended up in, in, in comic books. That, uh, uh, I think it was Flash Gordon saved some people with a bunch of interferon. Uh, but it, for the scientists themselves, behind the scenes, it was really, really uh, distressing to make because uh, the proof 
the, the, the detail of the way the experiments were done were very complicated. You'd have to swish cells about for time, infect them with a virus, take off the liquid, show that, that something in the liquid was able to stop viruses. And it was very controversial. Uh, they, they called it interferon because they thought we needed to have a fundamental particle like physics has, like bosons and stuff, we'll call it interferon. Uh, but people, um, you know, more thought that they just made it up. It was nonsense and they called it things like the misinterpreton and, you know, all sorts of derogatory terms. So it was very stressful for the scientists uh, who did the work and, and sadly one of the pioneers of that died, died very young for a brain hemorrhage. So it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a really important story because... It's, uh, they discovered something fundamentally important. There was huge hardship in them making that discovery. Uh, and, and there was a lot of hype for the medical outcomes. In the end, once the hype dissipated, it opened up a whole world of how immune cells interact with each other by lots of these kinds of secretions. And that did eventually lead us to really groundbreaking medical breakthroughs. But that was, you know, many, many years, if not decades later. So that, it, that story is quite emblematic of the whole story of of our work in the immune system a lot of the stuff that we have from it doesn't necessarily come from a eureka moment even in that story there was no eureka moment there was just all the time it was like oh that's interesting how do we explain that and we'll do another bunch of experiments oh that wasn't quite working how we thought it would and it was it was years before they came to a conclusion and even when they did everyone else said no that's nonsense what are you doing and it's so it's the struggle. There's a, there's a the, the the personal struggle, the scientific struggle is is really part of the part of the process. And a part of you know that's part of why I wrote the book. That it's about you know I'm a scientist myself doing this kind of research, going through the struggles. I haven't discovered anything as big as interferon, but it's part of you know I'm part of the fabric of all of the effort that makes that ends up with these conclusions. So part of the journey was me finding out what's my place in all of this huge story of working out how the immune system works. I've talked for too long. No, not at all. <laughs> no, you haven't, because this is what... I mean, going, going back to almost the start of the book, where you, you, you talk... I mean, this is one of the things that I love about science, where sometimes something is found that works, but we still don't entirely understand what it does. So, for instance, you write about vaccines in the first chapter, the history of vaccines, and... Uh, now, what is it? It's uh, added... Adjuvant. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, the story... For, for first, it's very important vaccines are safe. We're done, right? We're done with that. We'll move on. Can uh, I just say, the, did you at any point feel when you were writing this book that you needed to put in more about that? Because this is still... I, I, I saw something on my Facebook feed the other day which was someone saying yeah. uh, paediatricians are so scared of, of vaccines that no, no tests, no safety tests have even been done on the blah, blah, blah. And it literally takes Googling for yeah. under two seconds to find out uh, at least three papers from the last ten years that are about examining uh, multiple vaccination. And did you feel that... So I didn't want to go into... I didn't... Because it's quite a complicated thing about whether... It's not really about the data and the science, because the data and the science does show that vaccines are safe. It's more about, it's more about how culture relates to science. Eula Biss wrote this book on immunity, and that is actually extremely powerful on that whole topic of, this, of her thinking about whether to vaccinate her kids and talking with mums and and understanding the insecurities they have, even, you know, from a very rational point of view. That is, and that book really covers all of that ground brilliantly. Um, so, but what I did want to talk about in this book, that, so there's a few things. There's firstly the fact that, that, you know, so it's not that, although vaccines are safe, it's not that we, you know, understand everything about them, and it's not that there's no new research to be done. There's lots of exciting 
bits happening in vaccines? You know, just simply, uh, is it good or is it better or worse to have a vaccine at a certain time of day? There's some research saying some vaccines are better in the morning, for example. So there's there's, there's really exciting, hot research happening around vaccines. But the, what, one of the stories I do talk about is... It, it, it's just amazing, right? So, okay, so ever since Jenner, we know that um, your a vaccine works by essentially uh, you get exposed to a harmless or dead version of a of a germ, and that then your body is able to respond to that same type of germ if it was a live, real germ again much faster. It's the same idea that if you have flu once, you won't get the flu, the exact same type of flu again because your body's. Uh, it's essentially because the cells that are good at fighting off that particular version of flu multiply in number and some of them hang around in your body long enough so if the same flu comes back those cells are already there but there was something strange about vaccine and that is if your body should be able to react against the stuff that's not part of you if you give just a isolated protein molecule a component of a germ and you give that and you inject that then you would think that your body should be able to mount an immune response against that component of a germ, that small protein molecule, and you would be able to then fight off that germ efficiently uh, if, it, if the whole germ actually appeared in your body. But that doesn't work. So it turns out that uh, that was first done with diphtheria toxin, for the uh, toxin from the bacteria called diphtheria. And you inject the... Uh, um, it, was, it was done with animals. And if you inject the protein molecule, then it doesn't work well as a vaccine. But there's not really, in the concept of what at the time, thinking about how vaccines work, there's not really a reason why that shouldn't work. You give an animal something that's not part of itself. It should have an immune response to that component of the germ. It should now be able to react to the germ. Bit mysterious. The people in 1926, scientists were just checking how could, well, why doesn't it work? And just by chance, they stumbled on the fact that if you mixed up a molecule from a germ with aluminium hydroxide, it now would suddenly become a vaccine and you would get a reaction against uh, the real germ when it came into the animal. So that led to, well, how does that work? No one had any understanding of that. How is it that vaccines seem to require something else than just the thing, just the germ itself or the bit, or the bit of the germ? They seem to need a kick in some other way. Uh, and that brings us back to the same guy we were just talking about at the beginning, the guy who thought, how does an immune reaction actually kick off? How is it that your immune system knows to react to things that might be dangerous, not things that are just not part of the body. He predicted uh, in 1989 that there should be another part of the immune system that has that, that would include uh, uh, an immune response against things that are telltale signs of germs. So it's not just things that are not part of your body. You would have to have some kind of, he, he, he called them pattern recognition receptors. So the, the, the names get a bit complicated. Some molecules that protrude out from the immune cells that would lock onto molecules that are unquestionably from a certain type of bacteria, uh, for example. And he, would, he predicted that all this must exist. There must be another part of the immune system that latches on to telltale parts of germs that are going to be bad news, and that then is what's important for kicking off the immune system. Uh, and the way that aluminium hydroxide works to kick it all off is it just tricks the immune system into somehow thinking it's seen these telltale part of germs. He predicted all that. Uh, every, he presented it, or he discussed it in a, in a conference proceedings in 1989, and no one looked at that paper hardly at all for another seven years. A student in Moscow read the paper, 
uh, and then eventually there's a there's a not a lovely personal story about how he eventually gets across, meets the guy who had the idea in Yale University. Eventually they work together. Then over in France they were working on how insects managed to fight off germs. All the research comes together. Essentially, uh, a, a, another scientist is working in mice. Everything fits together, and the way I, did, you know, I spell it all out in detail in the book, and we, we end up with a very clear picture of the fact that your immune system has to have these two signals. It has to see something that's not in your body before, and it has to see that that is that thing that's not in your body before is definitely from a germ uh, or that that might cause a problem. And so, and that's essentially called it's called the innate immune system that they that they unravel. So that. That began our understanding of the, of the web and intricacies and complexity of what the immune system is, that it's not any simple, uh, uh, you know, it's not that you have these cells that then fight off germs and you're done. No, there's like, you know, endless numbers of different types of cells and lots of different ways in which they interact. And, and, that's, and then the, the, that's when the beginning of all the details start to unravel. So what's, in terms of technologically, what have we got now that allows us to, like when you talk about, you have a chapter about dendritic cells, about our increasing understanding of dendritic cells, which are kind of, is it fair to say, kind of like tree-like cells, yeah. so it's like the branches coming off it, and it, and it does it increase the, for instance, the number of things that it can connect to? Yes, it's, yes. It's like, a, yeah. it's, a, it's like a magic jigsaw piece in some ways. Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah, the, exactly, I can't work yeah. out what to yeah, yeah, yeah. So what has it enabled us to have a greater understanding of how something like a dendritic cell uh, works in terms of uh, the uh, body's ability to, to, to battle disease. Yeah, yeah. So it is, well, uh, some of it is is good ideas, but a lot of it is the technology as well. So, for, for example, in the discovery of the dendritic cell, what definitely helped was uh, using, uh, they, he used electron microscopes to show that they, these, look, these cells look really different. They're definitely different from any other kind of cell we have. And then there's genetic and, and technology that allowed him uh, to, you know, eventually people could um, change the genes of a cell or an animal and show that they have consequences. Uh, and then, and it was also about isolating different types of cells, which requires uh, certain hardware in a lab that allows you to basically, you know, take the white blood cells and, and, and isolate them into different types of white blood cells. And then you could mix back this cell with that cell and see what happens, that kind of work. So that it is driven, in fact, quite a lot by the development in the lab uh, technology. And, you know, and so my own uh, work benefits from that. So my own research is, is using microscopes. So we take uh, cells out of your blood, uh, we mix them up with viruses, infected cells or cancer cells, and we watch what happens. And it's, it's the developments in the microscopy, the, the, the tool we use to watch that, that leads us to to, to discover what's going on. It, 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 the, work, the, the research that I do is strongly led by developments in technology, yeah. Can you run me through, what basically, uh, an immune, when, when, when my, my body's immune, when it starts working, what happens? So I'm ill, yeah. right? What, what, is, what is going on inside to combat the sickness? Right, so it is very complicated, it depends what type of thing happens. So let's say you have a cut, and you have bacteria enter the cut. You'd have a bunch of cells, you know, so already the fact that there's a uh, 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 wound um, has triggered uh, reactions in, in the, the skin cells, the epithelial cells and the other cells, and the, the damage is sensed uh, by uh, uh, receptors that protrude out from the cells and sense the presence of all these molecules that must have come out of cells, meaning that the cells have been killed. So that triggers 
a reaction that there's some kind of response. And then you have cell immune cells that start to move into the area. You know, it becomes red, a little bit tender, flame, inflamed, because the cells are moving there. Then they would have uh, receptors protruding out from the surface of those cells that would say, oh, uh, there's this kind of bacteria that's entered into this wound. That's not very good. And some of the cells would be able to uh, kill the bacteria directly. Some of the other immune cells would grab, would be able to hold on to the How bacteria. How do they kill? How is bacteria killed by those cells? So these are probably very easy so questions. The, no, no, they're not. No, no, they're very difficult. So they're, they're, the bacteria are often internalised inside the cell. So it will sort of swallow it up, like engulf it inside, and then it gets destroyed when it's inside a sort of acidic vesicle inside the immune cells. Then the immune cells would then carry these bits of bacteria that they've just destroyed, take it, go trafficking uh, uh, through the lymph, a whole system of, of, of a network of, there's a bit like blood, but it doesn't have, doesn't have red blood cells in it. It traffics down this lymph, goes to what's called a lymph node, which is like, they're like the swollen uh, glands you have in your neck or behind your knees. Uh, they're not technically glands, but they're just called glands behind your neck. And that's where uh, they would then show the little bit, the, the, the bits, broken up bits of bacteria. They would show them up at their surface to other immune cells. Other immune cells will then look at, the, look at this stuff and go, oh, I've got, I've got the right kind of receptor that could recognise that kind of bacteria. Right, cheers, mate. And then they'll divide and they'll multiply and then they'll go back out to the, through the blood now, back to the wound, and then there'll be a sort of uh, uh, what's called an adaptive response, or a more specific response tailored to the nature of that bacteria. Now, the way, the, the, there's a really cool bit in how it all works that uh, I think worth just mentioning. So, uh, the, you have these cells, the cells that are looking at the bits of bacteria, and they've got to, or, or virus, and they've got to know which ones, which, you know, they've got to. Uh, multiply all those cells and go back out and kill off the virus. How do you? How do they become so specific for the virus? So one of the ways that this happens is I think it's quite amazing. So you have um, cells called T cells, so white blood cells called T cells, uh, and they have uh, a, a way inside them that when they develop, when these cells are developing, there's a few of the genes inside a T cell. They shuffle about. Right? And that means that it ends up that each T cell, because they've shuffled about a few of their genes, they put up at their surface a receptor molecule that every T cell has a slightly different shape to this receptor. So it's a different shape receptor, right? So these receptors essentially work by, by locking on to other molecules, like, like a jigsaw piece would lock on to other ones. And these T cells have different shaped receptors, so they could lock on to all different shapes of other molecules, right? Okay, that sounds a bit weird. Hold, bear with me. If then what happens is, as your as your as, as these T cells are developing, they're checked for do they have a receptor at their surface that has a shape that would accidentally stick to any of your own healthy cells, and if they do, then that T cell is killed off. So what you're left with is a bunch of cells that have randomly shaped receptors that cannot stick to any thing that's in your body. So you've got T cells that then go out into the blood or into these lymph nodes and they have receptors that can lock onto anything that is definitely not in your body because all the ones that could react to things in your body have been killed off. So they've got, they're made with random shapes and then you kill off all the ones that could react to stuff in your body. So you're left with cells that can react to anything that's not in your body. So that is how you get these T cells that could react to any, because you've got to have an immune response which could react to a virus, not only that your body's not seen before, hasn't even existed before, 
right, the new strain of flu. It hasn't even existed before. So you've got to somehow have a system that can react to stuff that hasn't even ever existed before in the universe. So that means you have T-cells that have random shaped stuff. So if something, if a T-cell does lock onto something, it knows that is not part of the body. I know that. Now, you saying this, so yesterday on my Twitter feed, there was someone who got, I don't know if you might have been in this as well, but there was somebody who went, I've just had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door and he's basically said there's no evidence for evolution and uh, what should my answer be? And I think he sent it to, to me, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Cox. So the other two, <laughs> so, uh, he's, he's very much confused my body of the level of knowledge. But, um, but when we're watching immune reactions, when we're watching the development as well of, uh, of, of, of a virus, are we seeing, is that, because I know that in Steve Jones' his book, Almost Like a Whale, which is a rewriting of On the Origin of Species, and Steve Jones uh, gives you uh, uh, a, a very nice comment about this book on the back of your book, that he talks about the fact that when you watch the development of HIV, you are seeing a version of evolution. You are seeing... Yeah, that is, is true. Is, so when is that fair to say that within your field, this is an example of evolution is not merely the body of fossils and a mapping of, of, of those genomes that have survived. To some extent, evolution is in action. We're watching that. Well, so not? it's definitely true that it's a selection. So in terms of what we're talking about in these T-cells, there's a selection for the cells that don't react to your body, and then there's a selection for the cells when they see the virus. Those are the ones that should be excited and multiply and go out and kill the virus in you. And it's certainly true that the virus is also multiplying itself and making changes in it. So it is evolving in that way yes it's a slightly it's it's a slight maybe it's a slightly i don't know it's a slight sort of trick of what you call evolution i think because people would tend to think of evolution happening over this long time scale but it is also true that a virus or bacteria but i think it's more precise if we th if we understand in detail what's going on so it's definitely true that over this big long time scale evolution in the everyday sense of the word you get new species and new animals and things happening slowly and it but it's also true that mutations are happening every time a virus or bacteria divides and yes that's a, that's that, that is an evolution in, in its well but it's tricky i think it would be it might be confusing in general to use the same word some for the same so it, it's, it's a selection we, we look to, towards some form of using the in, in terms of, of 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 an idea of watching the process of natural selection yeah 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 it's definitely a selection a natural selection that's happening yeah and it can be called evolution i'm sure lots of people call it evolution yeah it's just that it's, it's a bit different from the kind of evolution that people every day talk about yeah i think so yeah yeah it's like, you know, these words are tricky, you know, the word, you know, I love science. I mean, what, what does that mean? It's not the same as I love, you know, my friend or whatever, or my wife or whatever. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks. And there'll be more with Dan on Tuesday in an exclusive extra for our Patreon supporters, where he'll chat about his favourite science books with Robin. So keep an eye on your inbox for that. Or if you're not a Patreon supporter already and you would like to be, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles as little as uh, $3 a month and you'll get bonus episodes, extended episodes, behind the scenes stuff. Uh, we'll let you know about advanced sales of things, of tickets before uh, the general public. You will you can be a guest on Book Shambles. There's all sorts of stuff there, different reward tiers to have a look at. So if you like what we do and you'd like us to keep doing it, then please uh, do consider uh, going to patreon.com slash bookshambles and pledging on there. Thanks very much. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.
Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Music